Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. This probably comes as no surprise, but we live in an age of misinformation. So here's what I mean by that. Because of all the forms of media that we have at our disposal, and because of the urgency felt on several distinct issues facing our country, information comes out in small doses, and often it comes out without context or even the whole picture. This is why on numerous subjects at any given time, one can find two completely contradictory articles on the same subject from two respected news outlets. Again, we live in an age of misinformation. It's also no secret that people, including those tasked with sharing information, have deeply held positions on the issues facing our country today. In fact, this past two years has caused many to hold on to their positions with a tighter grip and to defend their positions against opposing positions with greater vigor. And because of this, the information we receive is often, if not always, bent toward the agenda of the one that's sharing the information. Again, we live in an age of misinformation. If you're anything like me, you, you want the information, but you're frustrated by all the misinformation that keeps coming your way. You wish there were some way to just get the facts and leave the slant and the errors behind. And sadly, I don't see that changing in our society anytime soon. You know, there are some who claim that this is the way it's always been, that there is no true information, that everything is a construction by people who view the world a certain way. They argue that the things that we believe about the past are just the product of those who were in power, those who had the ability to drown out the views of their opponents so that theirs would be seen as the truth. In fact, that same charge is made against our Christian heritage, those orthodox beliefs that we claim Christians have held since the beginning. In fact, many critical scholars argue that there isn't much that we could even know about the historical person of Jesus, because we cannot trust the accounts we read in the Gospels, as they represent the opinions and the slant of their writers. Man, that's a pretty serious charge. After all, our eternal destinies are dependent on Jesus being exactly who we read about in the Gospels. Our commitment to live for him, often in tension with the culture around us, depend upon him being exactly who we read about in the Gospels. The mission that we've inherited to proclaim the good news to the world requires that Jesus is exactly who we read about in the Gospels. So we need to know. Is the Bible just an ancient example of misinformation, much like we see today? Or can we trust, with good reason, in the Bible as the preservation of facts rightly interpreted? Friends, today's passage, I believe, will help us with the answer to this question. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And today we're going to be in verses 12 through 26. Again, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And the text says this. 
Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Let me begin by providing just a little bit of context for us, in case you missed last week or you just don't remember what we went over together. Uh, Jesus had just given his final instructions before ascending to heaven. He told them that they were to remain in Jerusalem until the Father sent them the Holy Spirit. He told them that the Holy Spirit would empower them so that they could be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were at, and beyond Jerusalem to the entirety of Judea, and then beyond there to the region of Samaria, and finally to the very ends of the earth. And this is consonant with Jesus' instruction that we see recorded in other places in the Gospels. In fact, there is some form of the Great Commission in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament. But let me give you just a few examples. Here's from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Again, this instruction for them to go to all the world and make disciples. And we see in John 20, 19 through 22, says this, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive 
the Holy Spirit. I am sending you. And so in all the Gospels, we see this same account with, from a different perspective or perhaps different details put in or, put, or, or left out. Uh, but the message is the same. Jesus is commissioning them. He's sending them out to make disciples, to be his witnesses. And so now Jesus has ascended to heaven and we see them in the waiting period before receiving the Holy Spirit, before beginning their mission that we will see unfold as we go through the book of Acts. And yet as they prepare to receive the Holy Spirit, to begin their mission, to make disciples of all nations, there was something important that they had to tend to first. Restoring the twelve. Restoring the twelve. If I had to guess, I would say that most Christians are, at least a little bit, confused by this notion of the Twelve. Here's why I say that. We use multiple terms to refer to them, and those terms are not always unique to them. Here's what I mean. For instance, we sometimes refer to them as the, as the disciples, but Jesus had many disciples, and they were called to make more disciples, and actually all of Jesus' followers are disciples. So to refer to these 12 people as disciples can be a little bit confusing. We also sometimes refer to them as the apostles. But even in the New Testament, there are others who are apostles besides the 12, like the apostle Paul. He's not counted among the 12, but he is an apostle. The Lord has bestowed that upon him. He called him to that before he was born. Uh, he called him as an apostle to the Gentiles. We see in Paul's letters he describes himself in this way and the apostolic ministry God has given him, but he's not one of the twelve. And Paul himself refers to James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle, though he's not one of the twelve either. So who do we mean when we refer to the twelve? And so our passage answers that for us. Uh, Acts 1.13 says this, When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. And for those keeping score at home, that list includes 11 names, not 12. And Luke makes it clear that one of the twelve was Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and died, leaving eleven, at least until the selection of Matthias to take Judas's place, restoring the twelve. So what is this group, the twelve, and, and why are they so important? Why are they important enough for Luke to name them all individually here? Why are they important enough to restore their membership again to twelve? Why is it important that Luke established this group at the onset of the book of Acts? And so I want to survey some of the relevant passages that will aid us in our understanding. And I truly believe it will answer our, our question that we asked earlier. Is the Bible just an ancient example of misinformation, much like we see today? Or can we trust, and with good reason, in the Bible as the preservation of facts rightly interpreted. I believe that this will answer or at least help answer this question for us today. So let's look at the calling of the 12. We first see the calling of these 12 individuals in Luke chapter 6 verses 12 through 16. Here's what it says. One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray 
and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, uh, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And so we see that from the larger group of Jesus' disciples at the time, the Father revealed to Jesus in prayer those he would establish as the twelve, designating them as the first apostles. And so this was a unique calling. These men were selected by God. It wasn't by their merit. It wasn't by Jesus' arbitrary decision. It was the Father's will that these men be selected to be part of the twelve. Of course, that does beg the question, doesn't it? You know the one I mean. Someone is probably thinking it right now. Why Judas Iscariot? Certainly, God had to know what Judas was going to do. Why would God select him to be among the twelve? And I think our text today provides a good answer to that question. Again, Acts chapter 1, let me read verses 15 through 20. I think this clarifies this for us. Luke's writing, he says, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. Yes, keep imagine that one in your minds. Ooh. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Why would God name Judas as one of the twelve? So that the scripture would be fulfilled. In fact, it was because God did know what Judas was going to do that Judas was chosen. And so we see that the twelve were elected by God, even Judas, yet for different reasons. But this isn't all that the Gospels tell us about the twelve. We see that Jesus established the leadership of, of these 12 men early on in his ministry. Uh, not long after, at least in Luke's gospel, not long after he selected them. We read in Luke chapter 9, the first two verses, it says, When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Wow, what are the things that they're doing? The same things Jesus has been doing. It's clear later in the gospel that Jesus sends a much larger group out. It's clear that later all of Jesus' followers would do many of the same things. Yet it was the twelve who were first given authority and were commissioned to minister in the same way that Jesus had. Jesus was building a group within the group who would serve as leaders when he would ascend to the Father. Here's another fact that we see in the scriptures about the twelve. The twelve were the primary witnesses of Jesus. The twelve were the primary witnesses 
of Jesus. Now, you've heard me appropriate Acts 1-8 for us today, right? And I believe this is appropriate. All Christians, from the time of Christ until the time Christ returns, are called to be his witnesses. However, our witness is very different from that of the 12. Here's why. Now, we testify experientially how God has worked in our lives, and we testify to the truth of the gospel on the basis of the scriptures. In other words, we can speak from a place of firsthand experience when it comes to the ways Christ has freed us from our sins, how he's healed us of our wounds, how he's comforted us with his presence, how he's answered our prayers, etc. We could speak from personal experience on these issues. However, when we testify to the gospel, to Jesus' atoning death and glorious resurrection, we are repeating the accounts of those who were eyewitnesses to these events. None of us were present to witness Jesus' death. None of us have seen his risen body. Further, none of us were present during his earthly ministry to hear his teaching, to see his miracles, to gauge who he truly was for ourselves in that time and place. But that does not mean that we're clueless on these matters. That doesn't mean that we have no information or that we have misinformation. God thought of that. In fact, it was the responsibility of the 12 to testify to who Jesus was for future generations of Christians. We see this even during Jesus' earthly ministry. We see this in John 15, verses 26 and 27. It says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. You know, we love to look at those passages there in John 14 through 17 there, and we, we like to think, oh, Jesus is talking to me. But the truth of the matter is he is speaking specifically to his apostles, to the 12, to those closest, to those that would be leaders, and he's talking to them about what he's going to do in and through them when he goes to be with the Father, when the Holy Spirit comes to minister through them. And what does he say? And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. In fact, our passage for today also speaks to this. When it came time to replace Judas Iscariot, to restore the twelve, there was specific criteria for the person who would join their number. It wasn't the best speaker or the most faithful or the biggest talent, or the one with the most charisma. What was the criteria? We see it in, in Acts 1, 21 through 22. It says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. It had to be someone who was with them the whole time, who saw everything, who could testify to the truth so that the world would know the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And just as the Father did when Jesus prayed all night on the mountainside, he revealed who was to take Judas Iscariot's spot among the twelve. We see in starting in verse 23, so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. 
Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. And so the bridge between Jesus and all future generations of Christians was the twelve. The gospel message was not some doctrinal construction that evolved over time, like some critical scholars are fond of saying. Rather, it was proclaimed from the beginning by those who were eyewitnesses. Early Christianity was not comprised of several competing groups and perspectives. Rather, it was the twelve, the eyewitnesses, chosen by God, who from the first were the gatekeepers of the Christian proclamation. And I want you to see how the eyewitness nature of the gospel, fueled by the authority and ministry of the twelve, kind of played out here. This is, we're going to just get a little glimpse, quick verses, that we're going to see in more detail as we go through the book of Acts. But here's just a couple of examples. Acts 2.32. In Peter's proclamation to the Jews in Jerusalem, he says this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Acts 4.20, before the Sanhedrin, Peter explains, As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 5.32, this is after their arrest and standing again before the Sanhedrin, Peter and the other apostles replied this way, they said, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And in Acts 10, 39 through 40, we see Peter sharing the gospel with Cornelius and his household, and he asserts, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Over and over again, the 12 testify to what they have personally seen. They know the truth. They saw it with their own eyes. They spent over three years with Jesus, hearing his teaching firsthand, watching his miracles firsthand. They saw the events of his passion unfold before them, and they saw him alive again after his death. Friends, we live in a world of ready-fire aim when it comes to the spread of information. We live in an age of misinformation. However, there is a reason that Luke assures Theophilus that he can know the certainty of the things that he has been taught. There's a reason that you and I can know the th that the things that ha we have been taught are true. And it's not that we're supposed to just take it on faith. It's that God, by his grace and foreknowledge, provided all the evidence necessary to establish the truth of the gospel. And so we can place our faith in it. And in the same way that this is the foundation for the kingdom building that we see in Acts, it's also the foundation for the kingdom building that God wants to do through us today. How can we be used of God if we do not trust in what God has revealed in the Bible? Or even worse, how can we be used of God if we believe what the Bible has to say, but we do not live as though it's true? You know, God never called his people to hide in the comfort of their homes, believing the right things. God never called his people to meet once a week to commiserate about the problems in the world, all the while impatiently waiting for him to fix them. God never called us to 
intellectually assent to evangelism and missions, but never proclaim the gospel to anyone. Friends, it's not enough to know that this is true. We also have to live as though it's true. God wants to work through us right here in this community. We just have to want to let him.